All right, good morning, everybody. I'm glad to see you this morning. Glad to sing with you this morning. Hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to find one close by in the pew, uh, somewhere nearby you. Uh, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 so you can follow along as we study God's word together. Last week, Pastor Dylan brought God's word to you, and he did a really good job, like a really good job. I got to listen to it early this week through the FBC podcast on iTunes. I don't know if you know about that, uh, but each week, uh, the sermons from uh, Morning Worship are uploaded not just to our website, fbcharrisburg.com, but also to uh, a podcast on iTunes that you can subscribe to like you do other podcasts and have, have that in your feed uh, each week. Beware, however, if you do that, because the audio feed that goes to that is like low volume, um, and so you can hear it fine. You just have to crank up your volume on your um, you know, headphones or whatever you're listening to, uh, which is totally fine only becomes a problem when the next episode of some other thing comes on right afterwards and it flows right into that at normal volume and then you, uh, it's super loud. Uh, also give you a pro tip uh, on, on iTunes, you can crank up the speed and listening to Pastor Dylan at 2X is interesting. It, it's, it's, almost, it's almost comical, in fact, because he sounds like a whole different person. Um, I'm super thankful for him. I'm super thankful for his service here at FBC, and I'm sure you are too. Um, and the text last week was right in his wheelhouse. I mean, I, I think he was the perfect guy to deliver that text last week to you. A word of encouragement that is rooted in the character and nature of God that helps us through difficult times. That's what the text was. A word of encouragement rooted in the character of God that gets us through difficult times. That's like him to a T, right? That, that is Pastor Dylan. And all day long, and, and we are all thankful for him. Uh, there were a few highlights from his message last week for me. Uh, first, he was right that last week was just an introduction to the themes of affliction and comfort. Uh, affliction and comfort are themes that are going to be fleshed out and explained throughout the letter, even in my text today and over the next several weeks. Uh, he was also right that the two travel together. Affliction and comfort travel together. You cannot know and appreciate God's comfort without the context of affliction. He was also right that the hope offered in those verses is only for the children of God, is only for those who are in Christ, those who are repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, which can be all of us today, right? I don't, I'm not confident it's all of us today, but it could be all of us today. So if you are not in Christ today, repent of your sins, put your trust in Jesus Christ and receive the comforting ministry that only he can provide. Pastor Dylan was right that Paul means more much more by encouragement than mere warm fuzziness. Um, that's not what he's talking about when he talks about comfort. It's more robust than that. Help, I think, is a good modern translation, a modern substitute word for comfort there, help. Uh, Pastor Dylan was right that affliction comes in a variety of forms. I really like this part. He talked about emotional affliction, physical affliction, relational affliction, circumstantial affliction, affliction that comes as a result of our sin, our disobedience to the Lord, affliction that comes from persecution and our obedience to the Lord. So if there is a variety of affliction, it fits that there would be a, a variety of comfort. If affliction comes in a variety of forms, then comfort also comes in a variety of forms. Pastor Dylan was right that comfort is not an end. It is a means to an end. We are to be conduits of comfort to the people around us. 
Hold on to that. That is the heart of my message today. My text today is Paul being a conduit of comfort that he has received to the people around him. So begin to see your affliction, whatever it is, as an opportunity not just to experience the nearness of God as he comforts you, but also as positioning you to be helpful to the people around you who will experience similar pain that you have experienced. Does that make sense? So when you're experiencing affliction, look at it and say, this is not just an opportunity for me to see the face of God as he comforts me in this affliction, but this is an opportunity for me to be positioned to do ministry, to be helpful to the people around me that I love who will face similar afflictions. Pastor Dylan was right to ask, are you comforted? Have you been comforted? Are you being comforted by the Lord? And to ask also, are you comforting? Are you comforting people around you? So, dude, I just told you you were right like seven times. That's a pretty good start to the morning, right? Pastor Dylan was right. He was right. He was right about all those things that he said. And today what we will see is Paul practice what he preaches. Paul is not an ivory tower theologian. He's not like the proverbial train conductor who announces incredible destinations but has never visited any of them himself. No. Pastor Paul will speak with raw honesty about a time of unbearable personal affliction. And he will testify to God's comforting ministry to him so that his audience, the saints in Corinth, will be comforted in their afflictions. And I hope that the same thing happens today, that we can be honest about our experience of unbearable affliction and the comfort that we receive from the Lord so that we will be helpful to one another as we experience affliction together. We will see also in the text today that Paul continues his benediction, his opening benediction. That word benediction means to speak well of. And he is speaking well of the Lord by extolling his attributes. Pastor Dylan showed you that Paul says he is the father of mercies. God is the father of mercies. He is the God of all comfort. And in the text today, we will learn that he is the God who raises the dead. This, this gets us going, right? And as Pastor Dylan said, put that in your heart. Put it in your heart, deep down, it is true. And you will need those truths that God is the father of mercies, the God of all comfort, and the one, the only one who raises the dead. You will need that when life goes sideways. You will need that when life goes sideways and the enemy or your neighbor says, where is your God? I thought he was good. I thought he was kind. I thought he was with you. You will need these truths deep in your heart for those days. So today we're going to look at verses 8 through 11 of chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, though, just so you kind of see how all of this is really the, the opening of the letter. We haven't even really gotten into the letter itself yet. All of this is the opening, uh, greetings and benediction uh, and those kind of things, but so important and so thematic for everything that we're going to see for the rest of the letter. This is God's word. Hear it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, 
so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, You also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Let's pray together. Lord, you are the father of mercies. Lord, you are the God of all comfort. Lord, you are the God who raises the dead. And we rejoice and we praise you for who you are. And we are thankful that you are near to us when we experience affliction. That you comfort us in ways that only you can. And you position us to be a comfort to those around us, within the church especially. You've brought us together as your people and we are so thankful for that. I pray that you will help us as we study your word today to be very honest with ourselves and with each other. About the seasons of great affliction that we've experienced, that you will help us remember rightly those painful nights. We pray also that you will teach us the purpose of that, that we would not rely on ourselves or trust in ourselves, but in you, and that you would see us through. Lord, help us remember that you have delivered us. Help us to live with confidence that you will deliver us, and help us to set our our sights on that great day when you fully, finally, forever deliver us to be with you forever and ever. Let this hope bring perseverance. Let this future hope bring present perseverance by grace through faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're verses 8 through 11 today. Look at verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. You might not have noticed this, but this is the first time in this letter that Paul has called his audience brothers, the brethren. And in so doing, he is aligning himself with them. In calling them brothers, he is identifying closely as one of them. He's not seeing himself as an outsider writing in, but as an insider writing to his friends and his family. This is notable, especially when we recognize the tensions, the recent tensions that exist between Paul and the church in Corinth. But as brothers, he wants them to know what happened to him. He's not trying to hide this from them. He's not trying to avoid this talk of suffering. He's not trying to act like everything is easy and smooth. As a leader of these people, he's not trying to say, I never have any problems. He's not trying to say, it's always on the right track for me. He's being honest with them, open with them, vulnerable before them to talk about the darkest days of his life. 
We need to see this in contrast with the so-called super apostles and the accusations they are making against Paul. There are some people who are calling Paul's apostleship into question precisely because he has suffered. These, these false teachers have come in and said, if, if Paul was really close to the Lord, if Paul was really an authoritative voice in your life, if, if Paul was pr- really endorsed by the Lord, he wouldn't experience these kind of things that he's experienced. And Paul is going to turn that on its head, and he is going to say, rather than shying away from this, he's going to lean in and use the reality of his suffering as proof of his apostleship. Not a cause to question his apostleship, but as proof of his apostleship as he is aligned with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, brothers, I don't want you to be unaware of our affliction which came to us in Asia. Which begs the question, what what in the world happened in Asia? What in the world is he talking about? And as you read commentaries, Bible scholars who've written about this text, man, there's a variety of opinions and options about what has happened. Some will talk about an imprisonment, maybe in Ephesus that we don't read about in Acts. Maybe some short-term experience that Paul had. Others will talk about a riot that happened. You can read about this in Acts chapter 19. Um, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, right, was the chant uh, of Ephesus. And Paul had come into that town and had preached the gospel so effectively and God had worked so mightily that the blacksmiths, the silversmiths who were making these little idols for Artemis were out of business. And one of them named Demetrius, one of these silversmiths named Demetrius started a riot in the city. And it was a whole scene that you can read about in Acts chapter 19. Some will say that's what Paul is referring to here. Others will read 1 Corinthians 15, 32 and Paul's reference to fighting wild beasts in Ephesus uh, as, as what's going on here, like literally fighting wild beasts, that that may be what's going on here. Others will say, uh-uh, this is probably an illness. Paul probably got sick uh, at some point and thought he was going to die, and that's what he's referring to here. Still others argue that he's talking about the thorn in the flesh that he refers to in other writings and the struggle he had with that as he cried out to the Lord uh, for deliverance. Uh, bottom line is we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure exactly what he's talking about, exactly what affliction came to him in Asia that he's talking about here. But what we do know for sure is this. It was bad. Like really, really bad. And I say that based on what he says next. When he says, we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. That is just a pile of trouble. That is just one massive phrase on top of another to talk about a a season of deep, dark pain. The language is vivid. The language of being burdened excessively, that's the image of a boat that's overloaded to the point of nearly sinking. Um, This summer, I I had a chance to travel to India, and one of the things we did while we were in India is uh, took a boat ride on the Ganges River you know about uh, Hinduism, you know that the Ganges River is the most holy place they've got. Uh, and uh, they would say that this water is unpollutable. It's so holy, it's unpollutable. I will say, based on eyewitness account, it's super polluted. It's like the grossest water I've ever seen um, and, and super polluted. But I remember being on that river and seeing these boats, pretty, pretty big boats, that would have dozens of people, if not hundreds of people in them, uh, trying to travel to some place. And they were so loaded down that I promise you there was not that much uh, of the side of the boat out of the water. I feel like if one person had walked from one side of it to the other, the, th- the whole thing is going, going under. Um, 
that's the picture. That's the picture when he talks about being burdened excessively as a boat that is about to sink because it's so loaded down. Maybe another way to visualize that is a donkey or an ox that has such a heavy load upon it that it collapses under the weight. These beasts that were built and bred to bear a burden, uh, being loaded up with so much weight that they collapse. That's the picture that Paul uses to express what he was experiencing in Asia. Whatever it was, it was about to sink him. Whatever it was, it was about to crush him. It's the way he talks about it. He also talks about despairing of life itself. And then he talks about having the sentence of death within ourselves. Like this is heavy language. And I wonder, have you ever been there? Have you ever been that low, that burdened, that troubled? That you would not just use one of these phrases to describe your experience, but you would pile all three of them on top of each other. And let's remember, this is in hindsight. This is, this is Paul talking about his experience in hindsight. If he's talking about it this way, looking back, having been delivered from it, he's talking about it this way, looking back, how much worse would he have described it in the middle of it? This pain. Have you been there? Burden excessively beyond your strength. Despairing even of life. Having a sentence of death within yourself. Have you been there? I think some of you may be there right now. It's one of the things I want to be sensitive to as I preach this. But some of you are not thinking about this in hindsight. Having been delivered, you're in it now. The darkest night of your life is right now. And if that's the case, this is for you. This is for you. This is here for you today. It's vivid language he uses to describe it. It's vivid language that we would use to describe our experiences in the darkness. But it's also thematic language. I want you to mark the words strength and beyond. Because those are going to come up again later. The word strength is going to come up in chapter 4. In verse 7, we read Paul say this. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. He's going to talk about power again. Not his power, but the Lord's power, surpassing and on display in the midst of his weakness. He's putting something on a tee here in the text that we're looking at today. He's setting it on a tee so that he can knock it out of the park later on in chapter 4. He's going to do the same thing in chapter 12, verse, uh, verse 9. Talking about the thorn in the flesh. He has said to me, the Lord Jesus has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul goes on and says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, distresses, persecutions, and difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He's talking about the limitations of his power, his strength in chapter 1, in order to extol the power and strength of Christ in later chapters. And he's going to talk about this beyond description, this thing that's hard to define, hard to describe in chapter 4, verse 16, when he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. 
For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Far beyond all comparison. While we look not at things which are seen, but things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He's like, the suffering in Asia was beyond comparison. And was producing for me a weight of glory beyond comparison. Those words in chapter 1, which are deployed in the strongest negative sense to describe Paul's desperation, will be deployed later in the strongest positive sense to describe God's faithfulness and his provision later on. This is a massive theme in 2 Corinthians. I am weak. I am finite. I am afflicted. He is strong. He is powerful. He is able. He is good. He's setting all of this up to knock it out of the park later on. Notice also in this talk about his affliction in Asia, the theme of death. Don't miss that motif here. Death is the way Paul describes what he's experiencing. I despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. That's the way he viewed it. It was death. He was looking death square in the eye. Whatever was happening, it was dark in Asia. And my perspective on his suffering in Asia is that this was the internal reality that Paul was experiencing in light of the variety of other afflictions he endured. Like he mentions at the end of the laundry list of afflictions in chapter 11, this internal component of it. You know, right, he talks about beatings and scourgings and shipwrecks and hunger and dangers from robbers and dangers from my countrymen. You know that whole thing, right? At the end of it, look what he says. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. My perspective on this is that Paul had experienced not only great external suffering, but internal suffering as well. And that is the affliction that he speaks of in Asia. Imagine being constantly pursued, harassed, and attacked by the very people that were once your closest friends. That's Paul's experience with the Jewish leadership, right? He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And now, after meeting Christ, every place he went, who was after him? The Pharisees and the Hebrews. Imagine the heartache of splitting up with your first ever partner in ministry over a disagreement. Paul and Barnabas go separate ways over John Mark. First ever ministry partner. And they break up. Imagine the disappointment when brothers who were once walking closely with you and with the Lord suddenly go back to the ways of the world from which it seemed they had been delivered. Paul talks about a character named Demas who seemed like a disciple, seemed like a friend, seemed like a partner and went right back in to the world because he loved it so much. Imagine the pressure of being responsible as a spiritual father to believers scattered all over the known world at the time and watching them do stupid things over and over and over again. It's internal affliction. He refers to himself as father, spiritual father, not just to Timothy, but to churches. 
Imagine the weight of accountability that comes with such a high level of leadership amongst God's people. We're not just talking about the accountability of high-level leadership. We're talking about the eternity that is at stake as Paul preaches and teaches and ministers. Imagine the internal pressure that he experienced. I think Paul had some stuff going on internally that drove him right to the edge. Burdened excessively beyond our strength despairing even of life, having received a sentence of death within ourselves. I think he had some stuff going on that drove him to the edge, and he's not the first of God's servants to get there. I'll give you one biblical example. In Elijah, after the victory on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, right? God answers with fire and consumes the sacrifice and the altar and the rocks and the water, all this whole huge scene. Right? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God, they chanted after this. And Elijah took the prophets of Baal and slayed them in the brook. And then that evil queen said, I will kill you by this time tomorrow, prophet. And he ran for his life, scared to death, right? And he hid. And he said this to the Lord. Look at 1 Kings 19. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. He requested for himself that he might die and said, it's enough. Now, O Lord, take my life for I am not better than my father's. Paul says, I was burdened excessively beyond my strength. I despaired even of life. I felt like I had received a sentence of death within myself. Elijah says, it's enough. It's enough. Like, kill me now, Lord. We can read biographies of great leaders throughout church history. Charles Spurgeon, in particular, writes with Pauline vulnerability about his own struggles with melancholy and depression, darkness, despair, affliction. More recently, John Piper has written about this, about his experience, hopelessness, darkness. He wrote a little book called When the Darkness Will Not Lift. It's gold. It's like 60 pages. It's so good. We see biblical examples, not just Paul. We see historical examples. I think I've experienced some things like this. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about my affliction, which we experienced in Asia. Like he marks it at Asia. And that's not the way it works in my head. Uh, it, it's, it's marked by years. Like the, the affliction I experienced in this year. Sometimes it's marked by particular places. Sometimes it's marked by faces. The affliction I experienced with so-and-so. keyboard sometimes 
So I'm thankful that uh, we know about Elijah's suffering. Thankful that we know about Paul's suffering. Thankful we know about Spurgeon's suffering and Piper's suffering and our suffering together. And these stories are shared not to elicit sympathy, but to administer hope and comfort, right? These stories are shared not to be complainers. These stories are shared not to create co-sufferers, although I think there's a value in co-suffering. I, I don't think it's valueless. It's just not the end. It's, uh, don't let that be cul-de-sac. There's a, re- there's a value to co-suffering, but we can't just be co-sufferers. We share stories like this not to be victims, but to be comforters. That's where Paul is headed with all of this. R. Kent Hughes says this about Paul's suffering in Asia. He says, think of it. Paul had 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 multiple life-threatening experiences. The stoning, five beatings that each took him within an inch of his life, multiplied dangers and shipwrecks. But this affliction in Asia was the most damaging and debilitating. The inexorable, paralyzing weight had fallen on him in Asia, and there was no exit. And I just want to suggest that often the internal, invisible pressure is the worst. It's the worst and can get us to this kind of despair. But look, there's purpose. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this thing that happened in Asia. All the pile of describers that goes on top of it. This happened so that, look at it in the text, so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. So that translates one word in Greek. It's the word hina. And we did a series about that little Greek word a while back and about how important it is to alerting us to the purpose, specifically the divine purpose of a thing. Why? So the question is, why? Why did Paul get to the proverbial end of his rope? Why did Paul get to the place where he was staring death in the face? He tells us, so that he would not trust in himself, but in God who raises the dead. That's a hard word. That is an extremely hard word. This all happened to teach him not to rely on himself, but on God who raises the dead. Look at the way Colin Cruz explains this. He says, reliance upon God rather than upon one's own ability is of fundamental importance to the Christian life. Yet such an attitude does not come naturally. Naturally, we do not rely upon God, not on ourselves. Naturally, we rely on ourselves and not on God. Very often, as in the case of the Apostle Paul, Facing impossible situations is necessary so that we might not rely on ourselves but on God. Paul perceived that one of the divine purposes involved when Christians are plunged into afflictions is to teach dependence upon God. Oh, wow. That is hard to say. And yet it seems to be so true. We are so prone to trust in ourselves, so prone to trust in our abilities, our powers, that sometimes it takes getting to the end of all that for us to truly trust in the Lord. And so when we get to the end of all that, it's a gracious thing from the Lord. Expository commentary says it like this, when the Father of mercies brings us to the end of our rope, he is loving us into depth with him, into life, real life, resurrection life. But there's only one way to enjoy resurrection life. One has to die. And so we trust his fatherly ways to walk with us through this fallen world and even through bewildering trials. 
He is the dead raising God. We, united to his risen son, are assured of final life and victory and flourishing. That's a strange grace to bring you into resurrection life by taking you to the grave. C.S. Lewis said, nothing that has not died will be resurrected. The path to resurrection life involves death. There's a practical argument being made here for the comfort of the Corinthians in this verse. But this verse is also the climax of Paul's opening benediction as he speaks well of God in the highest way right here. He has already said, he is the father of mercies. He's already said he is the God of all comfort. But now he says he is the God who raises the dead. And I will say, I will say what Pastor Dylan said last week, put that in your heart. He is the God who raises the dead. And we know this because he raised the Lord Jesus Christ. And apart from that, we have no hope at all, right? But the text doesn't say he is the God who raised the dead. It's not what it says. It says he is the God who raises the dead. There is a present tenseness to this that we've got to note. This is a permanent attribute of God. He is the God who raises the dead. It also doesn't say he is the God who will raise the dead, although that's included. Right? If we say he is the God who raises the dead, that's what he does. It's a permanent present tense attribute of his. That means he is the God who raised the dead and the God who will raise the dead because he is the God who raises the dead. You catch what's going on here? This is really important, and this is about the hope of the resurrection empowering our perseverance through suffering. He is the God who raises the dead, and so we can face our present suffering. Cooper highlighted this a couple of Sunday nights ago in his sermon on Acts. Why were Peter and John so bold to stand before the Sanhedrin with the case that was built against them, knowing that they could be condemned? Why were they so bold? Because they believed in the resurrection. Not just the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but our resurrection if we are in him. They believe that God is the God who raises the dead. My question is, do you believe this? Do you believe that he's the God who raises the dead? I think maybe the answer that I want to give to that question today is, just like that dad in the story from Sunday school this morning, I do believe. Lord, help my unbelief. Because oftentimes I don't act like I believe that. Oftentimes I face affliction today as if it's the end. Affliction comes, whatever, whatever form it comes in, and I think this is it. It's over. It's hopeless. I feel like Paul learned through this season in Asia to look at, look at that and say, oh, this is, this is an opportunity for God to raise the dead. This is an opportunity for me to be delivered out of this so that I can help somebody else. And if not, he'll take me to be with him. Like he was able to look at those afflictions with new resurrection eyes. And man, I want that so badly. I do believe in the resurrection. I do believe that God is the God who raises the dead. Who raised the dead. Oh Lord, help my unbelief. There seems to be a pattern here of ministry that Paul talks about in his life that was also the pattern of ministry in Jesus' life, which would seem to be the pattern of ministry for our lives as well. Affliction, death, resurrection. And in Christ, you can be assured of all three of those. Affliction, death, 
resurrection. Nobody smiles when they talk about affliction. Nobody smiles when they talk about death. But you've got to smile when you talk about resurrection, right? This is the hope. And look at it. He experienced it. Verse 10. Who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us he on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. Look at the tenses of the language here. He says he delivered us from so great a peril of death. This is a reference back to whatever he's talking about happened in Asia. Whatever happened in Asia that caused Paul such distress that he despaired even of life, that he felt like he had a sentence of death within himself, whatever happened back there, the Lord saw him through it, right? He can look at that in the rear view mirror and see it and testify to the Corinthians about it. The Lord delivered him from that. And friends, listen, you can do that as well. You can look at those things in the rearview mirror. And this is, this is part of, uh, I think, the way God worked this text in my life this, this week. Like the, the process of recollecting those darkest nights, those years, people, places where it was real dark. That was not pleasant. It's not the kind of reminiscing you like to do. But to be able to be on this side of those things is good news. Like one, I love to be able to say with Paul, he delivered us. He saw us through those things. He saw us through. He brought us through. So Paul says he delivered us from so great a peril of death and he will deliver us. I believe this is near future tense. In other words, Paul has confidence based on God's character. He is the God who raises the dead and his faithfulness. He delivered us. He has confidence that when the next trouble comes, and it will come, that he will deliver us from that as well. Also note, this like seems to be clear indication that Paul learned the lesson in Asia. When he says, he will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. What, what, he's, he talks about the affliction in Asia and he talks about the purpose of it so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. And he says, he delivered us and he will deliver us, he on whom we've set our hope. Like he's saying, now we've got our hope set not on ourselves that we can deliver ourselves, but we've got our hope set on God who raises the dead. He's learned the lesson through the suffering in Asia so that he can embrace the next bit of suffering. And then finally he says, he will yet deliver us. He will yet deliver us. One day, the pressure, the affliction, the suffering, the weight, the death, it'll be all gone. I believe this is the distant future hope of the resurrection of the body and union with the Lord to dwell in the new heaven and new earth forever. So Paul is able to look back on that season in Asia and say, he delivered us. He's able to stand today and look at today and tomorrow and say, he will yet deliver us because we've got our hope set on him. And he's able to say, and he will ultimately, fully, finally, forever deliver us. Because a day is coming when all this mess, Asia, 2018, so-and-so, such-and-such, whatever it is for you, done and gone. Done and gone. Wiped away. Look at Revelation 21. The new heavens, the new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and first earth passed away. 
Hallelujah for that, right? Let's stop there and say glory, glory to God. New heaven, new earth, first done. And there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Listen to this. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That day is coming. He, he has delivered us. He will deliver us. Oh, and he will yet deliver us. There is a better deliverance coming than anything we could possibly experience in the here and now. The resurrection of the body is coming. Dwelling with God forever and ever is coming. Walking with him is coming. And that can be yours. That hope can be yours. Did you catch that when he was like, anybody who wants a drink, drink, take and drink freely. He offers this hope to everyone as a gift. You don't buy that water. You don't pay for that bread. He gives it. As a gift of his grace, we receive it by faith by trusting and believing the great day is coming and it can be yours so I invite you to take and drink I invite you to repent and believe today look at verse 11 he says and he will yet deliver us you also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many I'm going to wait and deal with that next week I intended this morning to deal with that too, but I'm going to leave that for a whole week by itself. Like, what is the involvement in the body with this experience? Well, how, how, is, how is the whole church involved in this thing? And we'll talk about that next week. For application today, three, four ideas. Number one, lay hold of the hope that is found in Christ alone. Right? So in the same way that Pastor Dylan said, this comfort is only for believers. I'm telling you this hope, this, this ability to look at affliction the way Paul is talking about it, this confidence in the resurrection, the God who raises the dead, this is only for those who are trusting in Christ. It's only for believers. And so repent. Trust in Christ. Turn to him. No one else that can save you. No one else that can give you life. Repent and believe today. But I also want to say to believers this is your hope. This is true for you. This is not some super apostle Paul who's got it all together. This is not for the elite of the faith to have this kind of hope. No, he's sharing this with all of us. This is how we can all live with hope and confidence in Christ. This is the hope of believers. Is it your hope? Lay hold of it in Christ alone. Lay hold of this hope. Number two, share your afflictions and your comfort. I think it's interesting that Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be uninformed. 
I don't want you to be without knowledge, is what the word literally means. I don't want you to be without knowledge of the dark night of my soul in Asia. I want you to know about it. Share your afflictions with one another so that you can share your comfort. Don't let your brothers and sisters here at First Baptist Church be unaware of your affliction. Don't let them be unaware of your comfort. Evidently, this process is a community project, is a group project. This, this process of experiencing affliction, experiencing comfort, holding fast to the God who raises the dead doesn't happen in your prayer closet all by yourself. Evidently, this happens together. But it will only happen as we share with one another, and so we must draw near to one another. Share our afflictions and our comfort. Third, let's recognize that he is the father of mercies, the God of all comfort, and the one who raises the dead. Like remember, this, this whole thing that is so practically helpful for us, it's so practically helpful for us in our experience of affliction, in our experience of community. This whole thing that's so practically helpful for us is actually benediction. The, the whole thing is about uh, talking, uh, talking well about God, about how great he is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That's, that's the, the umbrella under which this whole thing falls. And so if we walk away only with the practical help of persevering in affliction and having hope and laying hold uh, to Christ so that we can persevere together, if that's all we do, we've kind of missed the, the whole point. The whole point is to see God more clearly. And when we see him more clearly, we will trust him and we will praise him. Those are the two applications. He is. He is the father of mercies. He is the God of comfort. He is the God who raises the dead. So praise him and trust him. This is benediction. And fourthly, like, oh man, I don't even know how to say this. If you're there right now, burden excessively beyond your strength, despairing even of life, having a sentence of death within yourself. You're not looking at this in the rearview mirror. This is all you can see everywhere you turn. Darkness and gloom, hopelessness and death. You're there right now. Look to Jesus. There is no one, no one who can sympathize with you more than Jesus. There's no one in this room who's been to darker places than he. There is no one here better suited to minister to you than the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you are in the darkness, turn to Jesus. And look for a brother or a sister who's been down the road you're on, has experienced comfort from God, let them serve you as the hands and feet of Jesus. Let's stand together in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we are thankful for the hope that is ours in Christ alone. And we want to lay hold of that. As believers, we want to lay hold of that, live in it, face affliction properly, Persevere 
in the darkness, draw near to you, draw near to each other. We want to help each other lay hold of the hope that is ours in Christ alone. We also pray for unbelievers who are amongst us. They don't have any hope at all. You can bring hope to them. Only you can do that. We ask that you would. That you would grant faith to trust in Jesus Christ. That you would grant repentance to turn away from sin toward him. That you would open eyes to your holiness and man's sinfulness. Open eyes to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross in the place of sinners. Open eyes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is victory that is shared with us by grace through faith. Open eyes and change lives, we pray for your own glory. In Christ's name.